So 111 years ago yesterday, Richard, April 15th, not just tax day, although it might be a coincidence, but the Titanic sank on April 15th. I don't know if that's a metaphor for our finances this year or not, but let's hope not. <laughs> Goodness gracious. It did, 1912. It was declared the unsinkable ship because it had been designed with a new technology for shipbuilding. In the hull along the sides, and I guess I'm not sure the bottom, I'm not sure how they did it, but they, they created 16 compartments. And in those, com those compartments were designed so that if, if something pierced the hull and made a hole, that it would only flood that compartment. It wouldn't flood the whole thing, which sounds good. Good idea. I like that um, in principle. Uh, but um, so it could stay afloat if up to four of those compartments flooded. If you got past that, then you're probably going down. But they were so confident that a ship would not get hit four times or in four different compartments, that it was very unlikely that it would ever sink, and so they called it the unsinkable ship. And, of course, we know that was a bit premature, because it did sink. On its first voyage across the Atlantic, hits an iceberg, goes down. And I don't know how they deduced this, but somehow they came to the conclusion, I don't know if it's because of the way it was described by those who were rescued or what, they came to the conclusion that it hit the iceberg and that the iceberg ripped all the way across five compartments and sank. Well, 1985, they finally had the technology and they located the ship and were able to go down and look at it through submarine screens and, and all the technology that they had to make that possible. And they found out that it did not pierce five compartments. It only pierced one. Yep. Now, I am a compartmentalist. I can't focus if I don't do that, um, which means sometimes I don't have a clue what else is happening, or I move from compartment to compartment very quickly, say, squirrel. <laughs> I can do that too, but multitasking is not a strength of mine. It never has been. Not even sure it's a good thing, but some people can do it. But when we think spiritually about the way we do life, when we think about the way we approach church, and really most importantly, the way we approach our relationship with God, it's risky to compartmentalize your life in such a way that God only gets a compartment or two. It makes us vulnerable, just like that ship was vulnerable. And so today, what I want you to do as we think about what Jesus is going to talk about, which is extremely profound, like anything he ever said wasn't profound, right? But very central to his message. I want you to ask yourself the question, am I compartmentalizing him? Am I kind of coming and doing my God thing once a week or twice a week, and then the rest of the week I live however I'm going to live? And I want to be careful to say there's a freedom in Christ that allows you to do that. But the vulnerability is when we rest in ourselves when we're not resting on God. In other words, we're kind of going, God, you can only show up in these two compartments of my life. And the rest of the time, I got it. That's when we start to be vulnerable. 
to being sunk, thinking, I got this, I'm good. So Jesus is going to help me um, with you answer the question today, why did Jesus come to earth? Now, actually, we've answered this question before because Jesus has answered this question before, even in Matthew. He answers it a little different each time, but basically he's saying the same thing, just a different way from a different angle. And I think that's because he's trying to reinforce something extremely important. Today, he answers the question by saying, the reason I came to earth is not to be served, but to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. Okay, so if you're taking notes, you can do that, and then you're, you're good. You're done. You got it. You got the main line, right? Now, he's going to do this, though, through an encounter with the disciples and a very proud mama, okay? And then he's going to show us real quickly through a miracle how we do that without doing it as a duty. We do it out of love. So let me say a quick prayer. And uh, let's keep going. Lord God, I thank you for your word. I thank you that I don't have to come up with this stuff. God, you just lay the truth out, and we get to just soak in it. We get to think about it, process, comprehend, and by your grace, live it out. So Lord, I pray that you will help us do that. Help us to understand today what you're saying to us. Help us to be honest enough to allow you to tap our hearts in the places where we haven't surrendered, where we've compartmentalized and fenced you out. Lord, help us to open up the whole life that we call ours and submit it to you, surrender it to you. Lord, help us to do that in our heads, in our hearts, and as we go with our hands and feet. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We are in Matthew 20. Lord willing, if I finish this message, we'll finish chapter 20. We are on the final quarter of the book of Matthew. I know it's been a long one, but it is rich. And uh, he's got some more, some more goodness he's going to lay down on us here now. Um, context is we are just continuing to see Jesus march towards Jerusalem. We'll see that in just a second. All right, verse 20. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons. And kneeling down, asked a favor of him. All right, let's just pause right there. Who's the mother of Zebedee's sons? Okay, so Zebedee's sons, sons of Zebedee, James and John. Okay, brothers, some of the earliest disciples, they were fishing along with Peter and Andrew. So those four knew each other. Zebedee was their dad. And you didn't have last names back then. You were the son of your dad. And that was how they identified John from the other John or the other Johns or the other Jameses. So, mother of Zebedee, I think her name is Salome, okay? It's not for sure, but they think that Salome was Mary's sister. If that's true, then this is Aunt Salome talking to Jesus. That means first cousins, James and John. Now, I don't know for sure, but even if that's not true, she is here with her brothers in faith. And even though her, her request is a bit misguided, I love that there's still faith involved. And, I, and we need to note that. Sometimes we trust the right Savior in the wrong way. This is where we need to be discerning. I think we struggle with this. I think it's okay to struggle with this as long as we're open and teachable. So the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons, and she it appears that she's kneeling before Jesus with the sons behind her. That's kind of how I picture it. I'm not sure that's right because it doesn't say... Um, but uh, there they are, and, and he says to her, what do you want? 
And, and uh, she says, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. Okay? Now, here's what I, I want to give her credit here. She believes that he is a king. She believes that he is the king of Israel and that he is going to succeed in establishing the kingdom. And she's kind of going, my boys have been there since the beginning. You know, we're good people. You know us. Let's make sure they get a good spot so they can serve you with all their zeal. Remember, their nicknames were Sons of Thunder because they wanted to call down lightning on some city that didn't do what they thought they should have done when Jesus was there. Okay? Um, And so I can kind of get, I love her faith, but... I'm also asking the question, yeah, was this the, was this the best thing to ask? And Jesus is going to challenge her a little bit, but he's not going to condemn here. He's going to correct. And he says, basically, well, I'm just going to read. He, you don't know what you are taught, what you're asking. This is my translation. First of all, the word you is plural here, and you know in South Israel, it's y'all. Okay. So y'all don't know what you're talking about. Okay. That's how we would say it. And Jesus said to them, okay, so he's talking to all three of them, I think, at this point. And then I think he zeroes in on the two boys, two men. Can you drink, can y'all drink the cup I'm going to drink? Now, I don't think he's talking about the latest espresso. I don't know that Starbucks was around back then, but he is talking about something extremely serious. The Old Testament gives us imagery about this. He even prays in the garden when he's about to be arrested and go to the cross the next day. Father, if there's any way that you'll get this, take this cup from me, yet not my will but yours be done. Okay? So the cup is pointing to not just the cross, just the cross, right? But the cross, the physical suffering, of course, but also the spiritual separation he will sense, feel, whether it's actual or just perceived between him and his father in the one moment in all of eternity when sin creates a barrier between him and his father. Don't ask me to explain what that actually means because we don't know. Scripture is not giving us a lot of detail on this other than to say it's extremely traumatic for Jesus to experience. He yells out at some point, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He feels abandoned in that moment on the cross. Okay, so this is, if, I mean, I can't imagine having known the Father forever in the past and going to know the Father forever in the future, and for one moment even, I don't get to know him like I've known him. I mean, he's never experienced that. So there's that. Now, he, um, so this cup is representing the wrath of God, physically, spiritually, and God has wrath or against those who disobey him, okay? And we'll see this in a minute, but this idea of when we disobey a holy God, we create a debt. Okay, I, I owe God when I disobey because I because what He deserves is perfect, faith-filled obedience from me. So whenever I do something I shouldn't do, whenever I omit to do something I should do, whenever I think something I shouldn't think, or when I say something I shouldn't say, I've committed a sin that creates a debt in the debt ledger side of the ledger, uh, and that means I owe God. Now, you start to do the math over a, a life, even a life well-lived, and that's going to be an, in, a, an amount of debt you just cannot pay back, which is why we need God's mercy, okay? So hold that thought, all right? So they answer 
with great confidence, and I would add great cluelessness, uh, yes, we can drink this cup, we can, and instead of correcting them or, or chastising them, he goes, and you will, basically. Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup, not the actual cross itself in the sense that they will die for the sins of the world, but they will die in Jesus' name, except for John, who's exiled in Jesus' name. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant these places belong to belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. And I, I could talk a long time about this. Let me just say this about that. This shows you that even as the King of Kings, the Son of God is still submissive to some authority. So when you and I want to push back against authority in our lives, let's just remember that Jesus submits to go to the cross. No extra charge for that. All right, verse 24. When the ten heard about this, understandably, they were indignant with the two brothers. Remember, Peter's in that other group. I'm thinking that James and John are going, you know how Peter is. I mean, he's probably already asked, but we better ask soon if we're going to do this. Let's get Mama to do it. You know how. All right, so Jesus called them together, okay? It's like this is not a kumbaya moment for them. And he calls them together, and he says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. Okay, think Roman Empire, okay? And their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. What's he saying? He's looking at his disciples who are representing the, the, the front lines of the extension of the kingdom when he is ascends to the Lord, and he's like, you're not doing it that way because that's not the way my kingdom works, now do you start to see why we have tension in our politics and in our churches? It's dangerous for us if we start thinking that his kingdom works like the America we know or any other governmental country in our world. So we have to be careful. Yes, we engage, but how we engage matters. Again, I must move on. So, not so with you. And then he gives us the principle of the day, okay? He says, instead, so in contrast to the ways of the world and the ways of the kingdoms of this world, in contrast to that, my kingdom, he says, instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. The word for servant is diaconus, which is where we get our word deacon. So when we ask the question, are our deacons deaking, what we mean is, are they serving, right? Are they serving, but not just serving, are they serving others sacrificially, SOS. Our world has an SOS, and they're looking for people to give them hope that there are people who are willing to serve others sacrificially. The first deacons, and I know they weren't officially deacons, but they were the ones that were the forerunners to deacons, chapter 6 of Acts, they literally waited on tables. That was their first job. They were supposed to help feed the widows in the first church in Jerusalem, okay? And they're, they're doing everything from managing the money to purchasing the food to handing out, and, you know, they're organizing and, and mobilizing people to do that, but they're, they're up to their, their necks in, um, you know, Wednesday night dinners for the, for the widows and Thursday night and Friday night and so on, you know, right? Because these widows were people, these were ladies... Uh, who had trusted the Lord, and their families abandoned them. 
So they had no, in that culture, you can't earn money. As I mean, there's just no economic um, muscle there for, for them in that culture. And so they're, they're, they're poverty. They're impoverished. And so the church does what the church is supposed to do when widows don't have the support system they're supposed to have. That is, they come in and they meet the need that the family would have met if the family was present. Okay, And that's no different today. Now, Paul gives us some guidelines on that in First Timothy, but that's the principle. That's one of the principles. That's not the, the principle. The principle here is that if you want to be great, you serve others sacrificially. Okay? And then Jesus doubles down and raises the bar. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. So not just do you want to be great, but do you want to be the greatest? Do you want to be the first among the great? Then he says, not just do you need to be a servant, someone who is willing to serve others sacrificially, uh, but you need to understand how far sacrificially goes. If you want to be first, you must slave. And it's a different Greek word. It's doulos, which literally means slave. It means someone who has no rights, no power, no authority, and yet serves others. Now, this is by choice we're talking about in our case, right? In this case, we're talking about Jesus is calling you to choose to do this because you have been freed from the slavery of sin, and so you choose to enslave yourself to Christ. And he goes, that sounds ridiculous. Why would anybody do that? Well, I'll just tell you, in the Old Testament, there was, a, there was condition made for slaves in the days of Moses, before and after, but mostly after, where if a slave had such a good experience with their owner that if they wanted to stay on after they were free, they could choose to do so, and the way they marked it was they would pierce their ear. So the guys started getting earrings back then. I don't know if they were the first ones, but that was a marker. If you had a an ear that was pierced, it meant I am choosing to continue for the rest of my life to be a slave to my owner. And why would you do that? You would do it because he's a good owner. Because he's taking care of you and your family. If you're making that choice, you must believe it's in your best interest. Now, I can't explain it. I don't understand the culture back then. We're talking 3,500 years ago. I, we don't understand. But I will say it is somewhat different in some of the cases than what we think of when we think of American slavery. And there are some differences. It's still slavery. Okay, I don't mean to minimize it. Okay, but there was a system in place where, for example, if you owed somebody money and you couldn't, you basically couldn't pay them back and it was very clear there was no way you were going to be able to pay them back, let's say you even lose your job, then the only recourses were you would go be put in prison because you can't pay the debt or you would work for them until you could, indentured slavery. So it actually had a practical way to help somebody get right with that person so that they could then get back on their feet and resume. And, of course, in, in Israeli law, they also had a provision every seven years that all the slaves were freed, all the Jewish slaves were freed, and that they could start over. And that was that's called the year of Jubilee. Well, let's see, every seven years, not just every 49. So, um, so but this is the idea, right? Serving others sacrificially is what makes great people great in the eyes of God. So our bottom line is basically going to be nailed down in verse 28. But it's basically this. The call to greatness is a call to the narrow way of humbly serving others above yourself. Following Jesus' example, but also 
empowered by what he did on the cross where he took our place. And that's verse 28. Verse 28 says, Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And that's the ultimate example of serving others sacrificially, right? And he calls us to this. You realize this? I know we don't believe this or we think this will never happen in my life, but what if it could? Have you ever thought about that? I mean, if Jesus is worth following and living my life after, he's certainly willing, he's certainly worthy of gaining my life even if I give it up in death. That would be consistent. Just as the Son of Man, that's referring to the Messiah, referring to Jesus Christ, did not come to be served, though he's King of Kings and deserves everyone to serve and ultimately calls us to serve him, he didn't come to be served. That wasn't his goal. His goal was to come to serve, to give his life. First of all, he was serving in obedience to his Father, and second, he was doing it because of our great need. We needed a Savior. We needed a mediator. We needed a substitute. We needed a substitute. He didn't just die for us. He died instead of us. My sins mean I deserve to hang on a cross for my sins and to spend eternity separated from my creator because I disobeyed him and basically said, I'm going to do whatever I'm going to do. I just don't want you to be a part of my life. Okay? Do you, do you see the, the weightiness of this? And I know it's hard to imagine an eternal hell. It seems over the top to us in our worldly way of thinking. But when you realize that we have sinned against an eternally, infinitely holy God, the only just punishment has to be match it in intensity. And to sin against the one who brought you into existence and exists eternity past, eternity future, and has made a way for you to come back to him despite your rebellion and to thumb your nose and say no to him deserves eternal punishment. It just does. To do anything less is to be less than fully just. That's hard to hear. That's hard to say. But I don't, I don't see another way around it. I know lots of theologians like to try to explain hell away. Some want to say it's just um, annihilation. That doesn't fit the crime. But anyway, I'm, I'm off track. Verse 29. Okay, now here we have a miracle, okay? Now this miracle is going to give us a, a, a nuance to this. Remember I said earlier, we don't want to just, we don't want to serve others sacrificially as a duty. I don't. I mean, we don't want to be that. And when you think about Jesus' words in Hebrews, when he says, and it says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. That should go, whoa, and for the joy. It wasn't that he wanted to suffer. It's that he knew what he was doing mattered. Okay? So if you take that into account and you start thinking about, okay, well, how do I serve others sacrificially, genuinely, with a love? You do it in letting God's love and compassion flow through you. And Jesus is going to model this here. As Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho, now, this is not the original Jericho. Remember, Joshua marched around and the walls fell down, and then there was a curse, and so they built another Jericho closer, I think closer to, to Jerusalem, about 18, 16 miles away. And he says, uh, so they're in, the Jesus and disciples were leaving Jericho, so they were traveling to Jerusalem. They go through the city of Jericho, and as oftentimes in a city like that, you'd have a main road that went through, and you have gates. If it was a city, it had a wall, and if it doesn't have a wall, you don't call it a city, you call it a village. 
That's just kind of the, the old school definition back in those days. And they, uh, so they're going through. And so because they didn't have a lot of public buildings back then, a lot of public things happened at the gates of the city. Okay, you'd have uh, the elders of the city would meet, and sometimes you'd have legal things, you have business transactions, and because there's a lot of traffic there, the poor would gravitate there so that they could get more alms because that's how they make money, especially if you're blind. You just sit on the side of the road with your little can and, you know, alms for the poor. I can't do anything because I can't see. So these two blind men are sitting by the roadside, and when they heard that Jesus was going, going by, they shouted, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. The crowd rebuked them and told them to be quiet. That doesn't sound very compassionate. But they shouted all the louder, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. They are probably standing at this point. Can't see, but they can sense, right? And they can hear better than any of us because they don't need their, they're not used to using eyes, they're used to just listening. And, and they get his attention. And Jesus stops and called them and he says, what do you want me to do for you? Now Jesus would do this a lot of times. He would ask a question, even though he knew the answer, because he wanted them to think about it and decide, what is it that you want? Because they could have just said, well, I just need some more money. My little bowl here is not full. But these guys, at least one of these guys, they, they understand Jesus is not just some guy. He's not just some popular guy. Okay, Remember now, they haven't seen a miracle, right? But they've been hearing about it. And they haven't seen him preach and teach, but they've been hearing about the teaching. What do you want me to do for you? Lord, they answered, we want our sight. Now, you tell me, how many times in the Old Testament have you seen somebody's sight restored miraculously by a person? It doesn't happen. It's prophesied that there will be one that will come that will restore the sight to the blind. And they're prophesying Jesus. And this isn't the only time he does it. He certainly does it here. Jesus had, say the word with me, compassion on them. Compassion, mercy, pity, these are all under the umbrella of the word love, right along with mercy and grace, okay? The big word is love. These are just different flavors of it. Compassion. When we serve others sacrificially, let's not, if we have to, if we're only at a place where we can't do it with compassion and we do it with duty, okay. But let's get to the place where our hearts are beating like his, in sync with his, so that we do it because we love God, therefore we get to love God people in his name, even though I don't like them, even though I don't like the way they smell or look or, or the, what they believe or how they dress, right? I don't care. I'm going to love them. I'm choosing through my actions and my words and my thoughts to do something compassionate for this person in need, even if it costs me time and energy, reputation and money and opportunity. This is what he calls us to. Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes, and immediately they received their sight and followed him. Here's why I think they followed him. They knew who he was. How do I know that? Well, look at what they said, right? Lord, son of David, have mercy on us, okay? Lord means sir or master, but it can also mean more in the context if the context dictates that, and I think it does here. 
I think they recognize he's son of David. What does that mean? It means he's son of the greatest king in the history of Israel before Jesus. That would be King David. And he's in the Davidic line, right? His daddy is a descendant, Joseph, his, his earthly adoptive father, Joseph, in the line of, of, of David. His blood mother, Mary, in the line of David, okay? Right? And prophesied to be that person. Okay, and as king of kings. And then there's that little passage, which I wish I had time to break it down. It, it's in several places in Scripture where Jesus asks the religious leaders a quick question about how come David worships his great-grandson as Lord? If David's the greatest king, why would any of his sons be greater than him? And they can't answer because they don't have an answer, but yet that's what Scripture says. And it's because he's not just a king in human form. He's a divine man, God, Jesus the Christ. They get it. it almost, it's almost like they could see what no one else could see because they were blind. Sometimes we think we know what a blessing is and what something is a curse. And sometimes, well... God can work through whatever you and I think is a curse. He can work through it and bring about great mercy. So the question is, how are you living your life? Are you compartmentalizing your life and just giving God permission to work in a couple of spots? Or are you letting him be Lord of all of it? Are you letting God flow in and through you so that you can respond to people wherever you live, work, learn, and play with compassion through your intentional surrender to him? Are you serving anywhere, anyone, at any time in a way that costs you? Just, I mean, these are questions we, I'm not even asking myself, we need to ask ourselves these questions because, I mean, maybe this is the question to ask. If I looked at my life right now, and, I, and I'm evaluating my life, and I look back over the last two weeks, would I be okay with this passage and be like, yep, I'm on track? Because here's, what, here's, the, here's the, what's going to face you when you walk out these doors today, when you flip off the screen today. You're going to have to decide, am I going to do anything about what I just heard Jesus say? Or am I going to just move forward as if nothing needs to change? And maybe for you, nothing needs to change. But isn't this the case every week? We, we take it in, we listen, we go, oh, that's a good word. And then we walk out these doors, and the only thing we can think about is, what's for lunch? Okay? I mean, I think it too, but I want to I wanna be open and honest enough to go, there are things in my life that need to change. And I mean, I'm just saying that's true for me. There are things in my life that need to change. And I'm not going to give you the list. We don't have time. But, but, it's, but it's real. It's true. And I bet you have a list too. But if we don't decide to take his word seriously enough to actually take the time to reorient some things in our lives, then it's not going to happen on its own. You have to decide to take responsibility for your relationship with God and how you're going to respond to him. And serving others sacrificially, that's a pretty popular message in church, right? We can say that because we don't really believe sacrificially means, you know, not that sacrificially, you know. It's just got to cost me a little bit. No, 
He just said it costs him the cross and ours is no different. He says in other places in scripture, multiple times we see in scripture, if anyone come after me, this is Jesus talking. If anyone come after me and wants to follow me, they must deny themselves. That's saying no to yourself. Take up your cross. That's how sacrificial he's talking about, symbol of death. And then you can follow me. That's how you follow me. Deny yourself, take up your cross. That means that I go serve even though I'm tired. And I failed yesterday. Okay, so this I'm right there with you if you're feeling that you're there. Okay, but don't do it because I said do it. Don't ever do that. Do it because he said do it. And don't do it as a duty. I mean, I, mean, I guess do it. If, as a duty, if you don't feel like you can get your emotions there and, and then trust that your emotions will catch up, that's okay. That's faith in action. But why wouldn't you want to love back the one who loved you and me? Why wouldn't you want to thank him for the infinite gift he gave you and me through the cross? Abundant life forever? What? How do you top that? That's mercy. And that's what he has to say to us today. So um, in a minute, we're going, to, we're going to continue in our service. We're going to continue to worship. We'll have a song, and you'll have an opportunity to respond to God however you feel led to do that. And one way is to stand up and sing. One way is to sit and pray. Um, one way is to come and celebrate the Lord's Supper by taking a piece of bread that reminds us that he suffered, and a cup of juice that reminds he suffered to death. We take those back to our seat and we ask ourselves, Lord, we ask the Lord, Lord, what sin in my life do I need to be reminded of so that I can repent of that? So that we don't make a mockery of this and just go through the motions. And then we, we take and eat and drink and remember the price paid for our freedom to then choose to say, I want that earring. I want to be a slave of Christ for the rest of my life. That's what we're called to. I don't remember all the, the numbers. Bill Bright was uh, one of the most influential Christian leaders of the 20th century. He founded Campus Crusade, which is now called CRU, C-R-U. And last I remember, it was like 400,000 missionaries associated with this organization. Okay, All those missionaries raised their own funds. Okay? And they choose to voluntarily, sacrificially serve others in the mission field, locally and globally. Their focus is campuses, college campuses, but they, they, they go all over. I bet if I asked that we'd have a show of hands of people in here who have served Campus Crusade or been a part of one of their campus ministries on. The beginning of his ministry, back in the 50s, when he and his wife were praying about how they were going to do this and, and things were just in the very early stages, he made a decision and laid it down before the Lord to be a bond, serve, a, bond, a bond slave of Jesus Christ for the rest of his life. He and his wife did. And for the next 40-something years, he served sacrificially. And millions have come to Christ because of that prayer and his efforts in the wake of that prayer. Okay? Just a guy surrendered. And you and I can be just a guy or just a gal surrendered. And God can do 
greatness in your life and through your life. But if our goal is to look great in the eyes of the world, we'll get our reward, and I promise you it will not satisfy. But if you want to be great in the eyes of the king, then serve others sacrificially in kingdom work. That's good news-centered work around the corner and around the world. And yes, it's going to be hard and tiring and exhausting, and it will cost you relationships and jobs and retirements and houses. Yes, it will cost. And we embrace that, and we never look back because it's so worth it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are worthy of our worship. We have sung to you today, ascribing praise to your name because you are worthy. And you promise that when we lift you up, you will draw people to yourself. And Lord, we ask you to do that even now, whether they're watching online, whether they're in the room, whether they're watching later. Lord, I just pray that you would continually do what you do best, which is touching hearts and minds and changing us from the inside out, transforming us from a woolly caterpillar to a beautiful butterfly. I don't want to be a caterpillar. I've seen enough of those. But I do want to soar like some of the beautiful butterflies I've seen you create. Even some of your moths are amazing. Lord, I pray that we would have eyes to see what you have for us. And yes, to truly live, it calls us, you call us to come and die. Starts with come and see, but at some point, there's a come and die moment where we have to decide, will I be a slave of Jesus Christ or not? And that means everything else in our lives dies. And I don't mean literally, but I do mean real. Because that's what you call us to. And so, Lord, I pray that we would work this out in our minds and our hearts. Lord, if we're we're married, let's do it together. If it's with our family. Let's do this together. If we're not there yet, Lord, let help us to get someone to help us process this stuff out loud. Think this through. This is not a, a snap, impulsive decision. It won't last. Lord, we need you to help us make decisions with intention to change. And that requires us to make efforts that go beyond a simple decision. But it starts there. May we have the courage to start the journey and to finish it. And we ask it in Christ's name.